0: I'll go home as a beggar and never be your wife. Hi, I'm Mary. And I'm Katie. And this is The Housewife Did It. True Crime Edition. All right, this might be a long one. So I do have some real-time true crime. On January 7th, three men went to a friend's house in Kansas City to watch the Chiefs game And after two days had passed, one of the men's fiancé went to the home to look for him with police. They found his body on the back porch and the bodies of the two other men in the backyard. There are no obvious signs of foul play, but obviously people live at this house. So how Mm -hmm. did they not notice their friends go missing or dead bodies in their backyard? Yeah. For two days. That's insane. That's all I know about that case right now, but I will, I will keep an eye out. Secondly, the LA Innocence Project has taken on Scott Peterson's case. Mm-hmm. And I have thoughts, but perhaps we should save them. Somebody said, is this our sign to not trust the Innocence Project anymore? Yeah. I don't know if I'm missing a lot of information, but I do wonder if that could make a great bonus episode. A lot of people do think he's innocent. I I feel like, I'm in not my experience, it's not, like, a lot of people. But, like, maybe it is. But, like, every, like, podcast I've listened to about Scott Peterson, they're, like, they say it's, like, very divided. Yeah. So, stay tuned, maybe. <laughs> We haven't had a January bonus episode. No, and I think, like, we've never covered that case, so it feels a little weird, but, like, a small little intro and then, like, our opinions on it? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe, friends. Okay. But, um, otherwise, are you ready to get into this one? Yes. Okay. Okay. On October 22nd, 1989, in St. Joseph, Minnesota, three young boys, Jacob, Aaron, and Trevor, headed out on two bikes and a scooter to the local Tom Thumb store to rent some DVDs for their movie night. They put on bright clothing and brought their flashlights, knowing that it was dark out. After gathering their movies, they turned back toward home shortly after 9 p.m., where they were met by a man with a face mask on carrying a gun. He told the three boys to turn off their flashlights and lie face down. He asked each of them, one at a time, their ages. Trevor, Jacob's little brother, told the man he was 10, and the man told him to run away into the woods and don't look back. Aaron and Jacob both reported that they were 11 years old. Then the man gave Aaron the same instructions as were given to Trevor. When they had finally run far enough that they felt it safe to look back, Trevor and Aaron could not see anything. The man, Jacob, and any evidence of the two were gone. This case became became the crime of the century in Minnesota. Jacob and Trevor Wetterling grew up in St. Joseph, which was known to be a very safe town, especially in 1989. It's located about two hours north of the Twin Cities. People reported feeling safe enough to leave their doors unlocked and actually said that the police chief himself did not carry a gun. Their parents, Patty and Jerry Wetterling, were very involved in their community. They both helped lead their local NAACP. And after Jacob's disappearance, Patty would would become a candidate for a Minnesota seat in the House of Representatives for the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, which is what it's called here in Minnesota. In addition to Jacob and Trevor, there were two Wetterling daughters, Amy and Carmen. In Patty Wetterling's book titled Dear Jacob, A Mother's Journey of Hope, she described her son. Jacob played hockey and was a goalie. He also loved all things Michael Jordan, especially since the two of them shared the same birthday. She also says that Jacob was sensitive about protecting other people's feelings and that he remained cool under pressure. On Monday, October 23rd, the boys, Jacob in 6th grade and Trevor in 4th grade, would be out of school for the MEA conference in Minnesota. Ugh. This is an annual teacher's conference that takes place in St. Paul, and all schools are closed for the day. So the Wetterling children were going to have a long weekend, so that Sunday, October 22nd, the family got all dressed up in their purple and surrounded the TV to watch the Minnesota Vikings game. And then that night, Patty and Jerry had a dinner at their friend's house about 25 minutes away. The oldest daughter, Amy, would be going to a friend's house that night. So 11-year-old Jacob got his first shot at babysitting his younger siblings. Jacob asked if his friend Aaron could come over too since it wasn't a school night. And his mom thought, sure, what's better than one responsible 11-year-old? responsible 11 year olds so patty and jerry left around 5:30 p.m to go to their friend's house the boys called to the friend's house and asked if they could go down the road a mile to the tom thumb store to rent a movie for the night because they were already bored out of their minds originally patty said no given that it was already dark but the boys laid out their already well thought out plan. They had flashlights, white t-shirts so that they could be visible, and they had already asked a neighbor to come over and watch their younger sister, Carmen, who was in the second grade. Yeah. Eventually they got another call while at their friend's house where Jerry was told that they needed to come home now because two of the boys had made it back from the Tom Thumb store, but Jacob had been taken. The Wetterlings rushed home without even telling anyone at that home where they were, that they were leaving. So the boys had made it to the store, and then they were only a couple blocks from home on their way back when a man dressed in all black stopped them with a gun. He forced them to lay face down in a ditch at the end of a long driveway and then asked them their ages. At first, they all started answering at once, but he told them one at a time. Then he pointed the gun at each and said, you, as they told them their ages one by one. First, he sent 10-year-old Trevor away into the woods, instructing him to run and don't look back or I'll shoot. Then he sent Jacob's also 11-year-old friend Aaron into the woods behind Trevor. When Aaron caught up to Trevor, they looked back thinking that the man was going to let Jacob go too, but they didn't see him anymore. They ran all the way home and told their babysitter, Rochelle, to call 911. First, she needed to understand what was going on. The boys frantically explained, and Rochelle called her father, Merle. Rochelle is like a teenager babysitter, Mm -hmm. so fair. She called her father, Merle. Merle came over to listen to the boys and then called their parents, telling them to come home now. But Merle quickly hung up with the parents so that he could call 911. I think this could be a time period thing. I kind of assumed that an adult man would have called 911 first now in 2024 and then the parents or perhaps if someone had a cell phone and could dial two things at once but obviously that was not the case in 1989 I think also like you're hearing this from children sure and you're like what and like I I don't know I feel like in some ways like you want the parents to be in the know before you do anything like serious yeah like calling the police you know I don't know but I think I think that when you're hearing it from kids you're like what the hell is happening like yeah it's probably like a little bit like well let me call your parents and like get them here and we'll call and like get everything figured out yeah I do think I also think this was so rare everyone would be calling at once yeah, I think this was so rare then, and, like, I yeah. do personally think that if I only had one phone, I would call 911 first. But the other problem with calling 911 first, right, a good point that you make is that, like, you can't just get off the phone. Yeah. Um. So then you're on the phone, what, the whole time they're on their way and the parents are in out of the loop for 10 minutes. So, like, but, you know, you could send a text now. You could have someone else call on their cell phone. So, I don't know. But, of course, Merle and Rochelle did nothing wrong. Sheriff Deputy Bruce Bechtold was the first to arrive and talk to the family. It was nearing 10 p.m. and almost an hour since Jacob had been taken. Next, Sheriff Graft and Detective Pierce let themselves in the front door and assured the family that officers with K-9 units were out searching the woods, along with the St. Joseph Fire Department, who had already been recruited in the search. The sheriff tried to reassure Jerry and Patty that at least 50 people were already out searching, While they were asking them and the boys questions. Because, of course, as a parent, you're like, stop fucking talking to me. Mm -hmm. Go out there. But at 3 a.m., the search was called off and wouldn't resume again until 8 a.m. when there was light. Officers were, of course, trying to get as many leads from Jacob's loved ones as they could. They asked Patty if there was anyone that hung around in their life that liked Jacob a little too much. Uh, At first, Patty couldn't think of anyone or really even wrap her head around that as a possibility. Mm -hmm. Eventually, she did suggest someone, though. There was a program through Jacob's school that connected students to a veteran in the community, kind of like a big brother, little brother situation. Uh, Jacob's VA pal was named Ed. Police did go and check him out in the middle of the night, but ruled him out. And Patty felt really horrible for even thinking that he could have been connected or for, like, sending the police to his home in the middle of the night. But, like, what are you going to do? Yeah. You just got to throw yeah. anyone out there. And, I mean, like, I think even, like, I don't know, like, as a teacher, if one of my kids went missing, like, God forbid, and and – their parents like were just naming people even Mm -hmm. if they like came and talked to me like I would not be like offended I know yeah or like upset at the parents because like I'm sure Ed was not mad any avenue to Mm -hmm. find them even if like you don't have a hunch about somebody like you're just naming people that know Mm -hmm. your kid like of course like yeah and the police are gonna want to check everyone out but like that's what they're there to do is to rule people out and like I don't think anyone could blame you for sending police to their house just to be safe and to be sure um, to get your kid back. Yeah. Although the day had been unprecedentedly warm for October in Minnesota with a high of 73, it just got progressively colder at night and passing into the early morning, of course. It was in the low 40s, and Patty could not stop thinking about her son out in the cold, especially since he had gone out in only a light jacket. By this time, yeah, probably just white stuff, just bright clothes. He said, I need to be seen, Mom. Yeah, how freaking cute is that? By this time, some media outlets were somewhat reporting on the incident, but they were reporting a boy was lost in the woods. Patty begged officers to correct the media so that people would be appropriately concerned about what had actually happened. And luckily by the morning around 8 AM, it was corrected. Police kept telling Patty that this was more than likely a sexually motivated crime. She was trying to think as positively as she could and also struggled to understand why someone would take a little boy from his family for a sex crime. I think also like, I think as people who are, like, very well-versed in true crime, we do not find that difficult to believe. However, yeah. I think that what makes it, like, more difficult probably to wrap your head around is, like, why did he let Trevor and Aaron go? Like, mm-hmm. why, like, and and I think they kind of thought the same thing. Like, when you said, like, they looked back, like, they're like, oh, he, they're gonna let him go next. Like, it's, it's like, why would why did you stop all three of them and then you only took this this one kid like why my kid why mm-hmm. this one and like it's probably very confusing especially in the 80s but like mm-hmm. especially when i think like in the 80s like what you knew about pedophiles is like they're just snatching kids up left and right don't care who it is like why would you not take all three of them like it probably is yeah. like hard to like figure out why the other two were let go and like that it must've been like some, some other issue or that you'll be let go eventually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She, I think this is also like has to do with the time period. And like, I've talked about this before that like kidnappings in the eighties and nineties seemed to be for different reasons, but Patty thought and, and probably hoped that someone had lost a child and was so devastated by the loss that they just sought a replacement, and I think that this really helped her to imagine that nothing bad was currently happening to him. That maybe they were taking care of him, whoever had him, and like that—that that breaks my heart. Yeah. This well, and like this case just, is so hard for me. I'm having nightmares about it. So I'll probably that would be taking a break from the children. <laughs> yeah, that part is like relevant to my my not my next case, but the one after that. But um. Yeah, and I think, like, to her credit, again, like, probably not in the 80s, but, like, at this point in time, like, we've heard a 1,001 child abduction cases, and in a lot of them, they do take care of them, like. Well, and, like, I nothing, actually think, like, especially no in the 80s, to them. yeah, I think especially in the 80s of, like, the, the milk carton era, yes. like, people were kind of just, like, kidnapping kids to raise them. Right. And it's, like, while that's shitty, you you do have to kind of hope like that's right. the fate that your child right we've got like yeah. trendsetter Georgia tan mm-hmm. and but yeah like it just is so sad because like you know like you'd be doing the same thing like yeah trying to find the silver lining. Yeah. All night the police monitored the Wetterling family homes just in case there were any ransom calls, rescue calls, or calls from Jacob. The next morning, officers went back to the search. They brought in dogs to track Jacob's scent. They tracked to a gravel road where the police found fresh shoe and tire tracks. They also went, police also went, not the dogs, the police went to talk to the owners of the long driveway where the boys were asked to lay in a ditch. Dan Rassier, who's 34 years old, was a music teacher who lived at his parents' home and farm in St. Joseph. That raised some red flags for the police. Mm -hmm. That's probably not fair, but it did. Just because he's a real teacher. Because he's a 34-year-old teacher living with his parents. So (laughs) that night he was home. Dan Rastier was home alone, and about a quarter of a mile from the crime scene. So of course, police wanted to speak with him and to search the farm property. They had actually. Already considered the fact that the abductor could have fled on foot, meaning that they could have lived close by. Dan did report seeing a car turn around at the end of his driveway and says that he called 911 because he thought that people were stealing his firewood. Police felt that he seemed very nervous on the 911 call and he was given a lie detector test, but that is all we know. We do not know if he passed or if he failed. I tend to believe that if you don't tell me he failed, then he probably didn't fail, but I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I, too, get, would get nervous on our 911 call. Yeah, that's totally fair. Patty took Trevor with the police to answer more questions, and on their way out of their neighborhood, they passed the crime scene. This is the first time that Patty had seen it in the daylight. Along with the yellow crime scene tape, the two bikes and one scooter were still on the side of the road. Almost immediately, lots of agencies were involved. Surrounding counties offered their officers, and the Minnesota Division of the FBI started on the case. The FBI's profile was that the abductor would have been a white male between 25 and 35 and may have had a recent unsuccessful abduction. The community also moved quickly to help in any ways that they could. Businesses started collecting donations, A local print shop printed flyers for free, and local college kids volunteered to hand them out and hang them up. St. Joseph organized a prayer march for the Wetterlings. Patty heard Jacob's favorite song on the radio, and she had an idea. She sent the song into the local radio station and asked them to play the song and to dedicate it to Jacob. She hoped that either Jacob or the kidnapper would hear the song and know that they were still thinking of him and looking for him. She talks about this more in her book later, but like Patty had this idea that like people, which again, I think was kind of happening in the news at this time that like people could convince these kids, their parents didn't want them. Mm -hmm. And so she just like did everything in her power to be like, if he can hear that we still want him, maybe he'll escape or maybe he'll Mm -hmm. whatever. So the radio station did one better. They played the song every hour on the hour And they sent the song along to other radio stations around Minnesota and asked them to do the same. Patty and Jerry did a national interview on a current affair, pleading for the safe return of Jacob or any tips to help find him. Over 50 tips came in, suggesting that Jerry could be involved because he seemed too calm in the interview. Patty felt that people were keeping secrets from her to spare her feelings. At one point, she overheard Jerry whispering with Mr. Larson, Aaron's father. She hears them saying that Aaron had actually been sexually assaulted before being let go by the kidnapper. The man had grabbed Aaron's genitals. And upon hearing this, Patty now knew that the officers were right and the crime had been sexually motivated. So I think, yeah, like to your point, like why wouldn't you like take all the boys or like assault all the boys like if that's the motivation and i think mm-hmm. obviously as soon as she hears this she's like because i think what it makes clear is that like that is the motivation but maybe he just didn't think he could handle all three yeah but obviously you kind of had them under control as soon as you showed them the gun so like it does feel yeah. like you probably could have taken all three but i mean thank god we did yeah. not didn't need all three yeah whatever As happened in these cases, tips were pouring in, but not all were helpful. Patty detested the calls from the psychics, who insisted on telling her either "Either you are running out of time, or I can sense that Jacob is close, or even one time telling the Wetterling children that Jacob will be home by July 20th. Some helpful tips did come in, though people recalled that there had been similar incidents in the nearby town of Painesville, about 30 miles away. The Painesville incidents were not looked into until a couple months later in January of 1990, but between 1986 and 1987, five boys had been attacked in Painesville. One survivor, Troy Cole, was 13 years old. He was riding home on his bike, trying to make his 9 p.m. curfew and he was only one block from his home when he was pulled from his bike. The man threatened Troy with a knife and dragged him into the woods. He was assaulted, and then the man used the knife to cut off a chunk of Troy's hair. He described the man as smelling strongly of cigarette smoke. In February of 1987, a boy was attacked in the stairwell of an apartment building. The man threatened to kill him and stole his wallet. Later the same year, two boys were knocked from their bikes and assaulted, and one of the boys was the one from the stairwell. So he yelled, you already got me, causing the man to take off running. How freaking, like, as that man, though, you're like, fuck, like, (laughs) they can (sighs) identify me now. Horrible. Yeah. These boys did not think that their cases received the urgent coverage that they should have. And they believed that this was because they were male victims and they weren't seriously harmed. And they are probably right. Mm -hmm. Earlier in 1989, Jared Sherrill was abducted in Cold Spring, Minnesota, only a 15 minute drive from St. Joseph, by a man with a gun. First, Jared was approached by a car and was asked for directions. Then the man got him into the car where Jared could hear a police scanner, and then the man drove him to a remote location. He sexually assaulted Jared in his car and asked Jared repeatedly if he would recognize him, to which Jared always told him no. Good job, Jared. The man did end up letting him go, telling him, run and don't look back or I'll shoot. Jared was able to describe the vehicle that pulled up beside him and the man inside. Based on Jared's description, police looked into a man named Danny Heinrich in January of 1990. Heinrich did live in Painesville, near where Jared was abducted, but he denied having any information on either abduction. He failed a polygraph test and was later placed in a lineup. Jared's description of a man with a wide nose, fat ears, and cheese teeth seems to... Stop. (laughs) Jared said, you know what, if they're not going to catch the guy, I'm going to bully him. I'm (laughs) going to rip him to shreds. It's like like when people describe Richard Speck, and they're like, his face was horrible. Yeah. Jared said, okay, fine, don't take my case seriously. I'm just going to bully the guy. Yeah. He's going to be so embarrassed. What are so I you can look him up. Like are they yellow? I don't know. Or like are they like do they have holes in them like Swiss cheese? I don't know. Are they blue cheese? They've got ew. So his description seemed to match Danny Heinrich, Danny Heinrich pretty well. But out of the lineup, Jared identified Heinrich along with another man as possibly being the man. So he basically said it could be that guy or that guy. Also, Jared rated the other man as a 7 out of 10 similarity, but only rated Heinrich a 4 out of 10. Police allowed Jared to sit inside of Heinrich's car, and Jared did not did identify it as the car from his assault, but the car was inconsistent with his earlier descriptions. They searched Heinrich's home and found police scanners and a trunk full of photos of children. Although clearly a bad guy the FBI also ruled out Heinrich's tires as matches to the tire marks at the scene. Two weeks later though, the FBI did say that fibers found on Jared's clothing had microscopic similarities to fibers found in Heinrich's car. So what a confusing presentation. Mm -hmm. The police arrested Heinrich in connection to Jared's abduction, but then they did not have enough to keep him. So they let him go, which in this case, like, True. Yeah. He didn't even identify him. I get it. Patty describes other incidents that the family thought might lead them to Jacob. Shortly after his kidnapping, a man in St. Joseph, likely having a mental health crisis, barricaded himself inside of a house in a standoff with police. The man continuously spoke about Jacob, so police thought Jacob might be inside of the house. Uh, It turns out that this man was also a former parent parent. Parent a former patient of Jerry's, who was a chiropractor, so more concerning. The man was eventually taken to the hospital for a mental evaluation, and Jacob was not inside the house. Also, within a couple of weeks of Jacob being taken, a man was screaming at nearby railroad tracks that he wanted to die because he had done horrible things. He was also taken to the hospital for mental evaluation, and Patty says that he was actually investigated for many years. Only two days before Christmas, the first Christmas that the Wetterlings would have spent without Jacob, an announcement came over the intercom system of a mall in St. Cloud saying, "Jacob Wetterling has been found." But it turns out this was a mistake. Patty describes yeah, Patty big describes mistake. how devastating. And like, they weren't at the mall, thank God, but like people yeah. were calling them and being like, oh, yeah. oh my, my God, congrats. <laughs> cool. Patty describes that by this point, they had already learned not to get too invested in good news until it was confirmed, but that this was obviously still a disappointment. On Christmas morning, a group of veterans had walked 65 miles over the course of two days from the Twin Cities to St. Joseph, and the walk was used to raise money for the Friends of Jacob Fund. And eventually this would turn into the Jacob Freedom Walk, which would continue for many years so cute. On February 17th, 1990, the Wetterlings were able to set up a nonprofit organization called the Jacob Wetterling Foundation, and they announced the founding on this day because it was Jacob's 12th birthday. Patty Wetterling continued to work with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, trying to learn everything she could about these cases. Could they be avoided? How do the kidnappers operate? she especially focused on stories about long-term missing children who were able to eventually return home. She says in her book, quote, I'd learned a lot about the types of people who committed sexual crimes against children, and in most cases, the offender had many victims, sometimes over 100. I'd been told that treatment is ineffective at best and sometimes even detrimental since the offenders learned how not to get caught while being treated for their crimes, end quote very interesting, like... Mm-hmm. And true. Yeah, true. Like, I mean, it's, like, not something I really thought about that, like, that would be part of the treatment discussion. Is like, just ways to not get caught, but, like, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think that's, like, part of the discussion, but, Well, like, but, like, it would learn. come up, and you would be, like, yeah. huh, so they wouldn't like, have found me if I had done that? Like, that's what Ed Kemper did. He took, like, the things that they taught him in therapy and, like watched what other people did who were getting released and like mimicked it. Mm. One day before the one year anniversary of Jacob's kidnapping, Patty started writing open letters to him in local newspapers. She wrote, quote, remember how frustrated you were last fall because after wearing goalie skates for so long, you thought you couldn't skate on regular skates. I found out last winter that those skates hadn't been sharpened right and it wasn't your fault you couldn't skate on them. I wanted you to know that for the same reason that whatever has happened to you or whatever you have been forced to do is not your fault. It's survival. Oh, one moment, please. She says, please don't believe that we don't want you back. That's one of the many lies you've probably been told. If pictures were taken, don't believe that they'd show the pictures everywhere if you left. If they do, they'd get arrested. You've done nothing wrong and we love you. Remember how I've always believed in you. End quote. Oh, stop. Patty, what a freaking gal. Just put to put in here, I highly recommend her book. It was so good. <sighs> okay. So the investigative team obviously over time was continuously reduced as resources would need to be allocated elsewhere. Police did continue to look into Dan Rassier, Danny Heinrich, and a few other men in the area, but leads started dwindling. Over the following years, they released at least five different sketches of the possible suspect, which I don't love. It, like, reminds me of, like, the Delphi murders. Mm-hmm. Like, it just confuses people. Yeah, because those sketches didn't look nothing alike. <laughs> no. Yeah. In 1991, US Senator Dave Durenberger reached out to the Wetterlings to help him in proposing a national registry to track people who committed crimes against children. It would be known as the Jacob Wetterling Act, and it was passed in 1994 as the Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration and Child Safety Act. So it got much longer, but great. <laughs> Along with this act in 1996, the Amber Alert system was created. So lots of things happening. Mm -hmm. When the Boston Globe published their 2002 expose on child sexual abuse by thousands of priests, people began to focus on pedophilia in their churches. So like this case is so interesting because it spans such a long time Mm -hmm. that we get to see so many eras. So, Patty Wetterling understood the new suspicion of a priest's possible involvement, but with her knowledge of these offenders, she wasn't sure that priests would resort to abduction when they're surrounded by children daily. Mm-hmm.
1: And also, How- like, where would you
0: put them? Yeah. However, she was shaken by the discovery that two local priests who had been in her home after Jacob's disappearance were facing credible sexual assault allegations. In fact, Father Tom Gillespie had been the first to hold a prayer service in honor of Jacob. And the other, Father Matt Feeney, had invited her other children over to his house for a movie night. No, nope. Which I'm guessing they did not go to, because she did not say that in the book. Yeah. But, oof. Like... But, I mean, oh to be fair, God. like... Uh, She's probably not sending her kids over to anybody's house right now. No. No. It's also interesting, because they're, like, not Catholic. Um, yeah. Like, these were just... And, and, like, it seems like this was just the culture. Like, everyone in St. Joseph was helping. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Like, weird. Stressful. Everyone's a suspect. 14 years after 1989... In 2003, a man named Kevin was telling a friend that he had been a witness to the Wetterling scene. His friend encouraged him to call investigators and tell them what he saw. Kevin had a police scanner in his car and he heard that something was going on. So he drove down to the scene where he saw the bikes in the ditch. He walked over to the police and told them about the bikes, but they told him they had it handled and he should go home. Once he came forward in 2003, the police realized it was likely his tire tracks that were at the scene, since he drove right up to the officers and then had to turn around. This made them return to their original thought of the suspect being on foot, which brought them back to Dan Rassier as their main focus in the Wetterling investigation. Come on, folks. This car literally drove up to you. Yeah. In 2009, investigators received another tip that a barber from St. Francis, Minnesota had told his psychiatrist that he killed two boys in either 1958 or 1959. The man's name was Vernon Seats. He had previously met with the family, claiming to be a psychic, even once showing Patty a painting that he had done of Jacob. Gross. This poor lady. Like, yeah. She obviously wants any tip, but I eventually would reach a point where I'm like, I don't want to fucking hear anything from anyone. Yeah. I'm done. You become a recluse. Yeah. Seats eventually died in his home of natural causes, yeah. and in his home were found newspaper clippings and missing posters, children's shoes, books on cannibalism, patches of human hair in various colors, bondage straps, chains, and cuffs, Maps with lots of locations circled on them, a gun, photos of unknown children, including one from nineteen fifty nine, and a novel called Innocent Rage that was written by Seats himself. Oh god. He, yeah. He also had fresh cement recently poured in his basement. I'm gonna give a spoiler, we won't talk about Vernon Seats again. So that's yeah, all just Jacob very did it go listening in fifty eight or fifty nine. No, but, yo, you know, what a weird guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Investigators suggested that Patty Wetterling asked Dan Rassier to meet with her directly. They hoped that it would appeal to any emotion or remorse that he felt and that she could get a confession from him. In the meeting, they played video and audio clips of Jacob Wetterling. Dan Rassier did fully cooperate, providing the police with DNA and consenting to further searches on his property. Or his parents' property, to be more accurate. I think it's interesting that it's his parents' property, but they, like, zeroed in on him. Like, they weren't home. He was home uh, alone. Yeah. He also mentioned a car that he felt was involved. But when Patty questioned how he thought this, because it was dark outside, like, how he would have seen this car, uh, Rassier explained that there was a car in the afternoon that came by quickly and made a U-turn. Then he says that a quarter after nine, a different car came by and did another U-turn, but he was sure that it was the same driver. He says that they had a yard light that allowed him to see that. Around 10, he looked outside and saw action at the end of his driveway, thinking someone was stealing his firewood. He called 911. Dan theorized that the two different U-turns could have been a test run before the actual crime or even that Kevin, who claimed to have come to the scene and turned around, should be questioned again. Which I don't disagree with. <laughs> he continues to deny any involvement, but he did mention specific areas on his family's 26-acre property where he fears that someone could have buried Jacob. To, to Patty's face, he tells her about these areas that Jacob could have been buried He says that because he was a public suspect, someone could have buried Jacob on his property to attempt to frame him. Which, my friend, is, like, never a good theory to throw out there. Yeah, you can't say that out loud. Yeah, because then if he is found in one of those exact areas you just mentioned, it doesn't seem like a frame job. Um, This is something that Monica would say. This is something you... On the Salt Lake City reunion. Yeah, that you just you theorize about it in your own freaking head. my Yeah, friend. or no, I was going to say or go search your own property, but maybe don't find the body. Um, I don't know. Yeah, you just don't say that out loud. Mm-mm. So Patty did leave the meeting and she told an FBI agent that she did not think Dan Rassier did it. But the FBI were not so sure. No, I trust her. Yeah, I know. I'm like, mm, that was very suspicious, but if Patty believes him, me yeah, too. <laughs> I'm good. Whatever. They still planned to conduct their third and most extensive search of the Rassier property. They collected six trucks full of dirt and ash from the Rassier dump pit. That's a big-ass dump pit. What? Then identified, quote, some items of interest. These were sent to the lab, but nothing concrete came of the search. We are actually nearing the end, so any thoughts before I go to that next part? <laughs> um no, I did look up Danny Heinrich, G-C? and there are no photos of his teeth. He Damn it. his mouth is closed in every single one. He got hurt. He got hurt by that there comment. Was, like, there was a, there was one, it was, it was 10 pictures um, of him from like the time he was like young until like he's older. There is one where his mouth is open, but it's in black and white. So I can't tell what's going on with his teeth. They don't look um, cheesy in black and white. They don't. Like, I think mm. they, I think it must mean that they're yellow. Probably. The Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension reported being able to obtain a DNA profile from the wrist of Jared Sherrill's sweatshirt in 2012 and determined that it contained the DNA of two people. Jared could not be ruled out as one of those people, but the prominent DNA was not Jared's. In fact, 99.5% of the population could be ruled out of the prominent sample. It wasn't until 2015, though, that tests determined the sweatshirt DNA to match that of a hair hair sample taken back in 1990 from Danny Heinrich. Which is why there are pictures of him all over Google. Yeah. They also found that he was likely the DNA found on a baseball hat taken from one of the Painesville attacks. it. A couple weeks later, police went to search Heinrich's home in Annandale, Minnesota, about 30 minutes from St. Joseph and about 40 from Painesville. They seized 19 three-ring binders filled with child pornography, handcuffs, duct tape, a camouflage outfit, and four bins filled with boys' clothing. Much of the child pornography seemed to be homemade by Heinrich himself, using Painesville school yearbooks from the 1970s. Finally, they found multiple videotapes of secretly recorded footage of neighborhood boys. Investigators also explained to the Wetterlings that back in 1990, they had nearly matched Heinrich's shoes with the shoe print at the scene and his tires to the tracks at the scene, which we actually heard that the tires didn't match so I don't know what that means and that they they were matched to the the guy who Kevin yeah Yeah. so I'm like I don't know what that means they nearly matched but it wasn't enough at the time but now five months after okay never mind. so it wasn't enough at the time I don't know if that means that like now they're finding like different tires at his house and like, like maybe he had changed the tires so like when they tested the tires they were like different tires. I don't know. Weird, confusing. Cuz they didn't match the car that Jared had been in, but maybe they matched something. Sure. Else. Yeah, cuz Jared's was like not at the same time. It, it was like it was like, like earlier before. in the, It was earlier the same year, but <laughs> yeah. And apparently he might have two cars cuz he's just making new turns in two different cars. 5 months after they searched his home in October of 2015, Heinrich was charged with 25 federal counts of child pornography. He would be facing up to 60 years on these charges alone. The statute of limitations on the Cold Spring abduction of Jared Sherrill had expired. But because of the updated Minnesota Child Victims Act, Jared was able to file a civil suit against Heinrich. A pro bono attorney, Doug Kelly, helped Jared to sue in May of 2016 on counts of sexual battery and false imprisonment. They were seeking damages of about $50,000, but Jared knew that he was not likely to receive money. He just wanted to bring himself a little bit of justice. It also allowed prosecutors to subpoena witnesses and raise questions that would ultimately help them in their other cases. Heinrich knew that Heinrich knew what he was facing just with the pornography charges, so his team started contemplating a deal. The prosecution brought the deal to the Wetterlings that they would pursue only the trial pornography charges and not go to, tri- go to trial regarding Jacob's kidnapping, if he could lead them to Jacob's remains and confess to his abduction and murder. Additionally, the U.S. attorney would require him to confess to Jared's abduction, But because he wasn't filing criminal charges, they didn't need Jared's approval for the deal. They just needed the Wetterlings. The Wetterlings were saddened to hear that the prosecution was so sure that Jacob was murdered. Because Patty still did not let herself believe 27 years later that he was murdered. But they also wanted answers. On September 1st, 2016, Danny Heinrich led them to Jacob's remains on a farm in Painesville and confessed to the abduction, sexual assault, and murder of Jacob Wetterling, as well as the abduction and assault of Jared Cheryl. He would still be sentenced to 20 years in prison for one of the federal child pornography charges. The Wetterlings were also reassured that if Heinrich were to get out after his sentence he would likely be civilly committed so patty writes quote with two child abductions two child sexual assaults and jacob's murder on the record it is highly likely that he will be deemed a continued threat and be civilly committed to the minnesota sex offender program for further incarceration and treatment end quote so when his 20 years are up they were reassured that like he won't we don't really know what it would look like but like he won't be free like yeah. he may be in a facility or he may be still imprisoned, but don't really think they're going to just, like, let this guy on the street because he just, like, confessed to murder. Yeah, he could also be a billion years old by then. Yeah. He's old guy. He confessed that he parked his car and hid where the boys could not see him. He had already seen Jacob, Trevor, and Aaron going to the Tom Thumb store and then waited until they came back. When he confronted the boys with the gun, he claims that the boys offered him their movie that they had just rented. Because they're like, what, is, what do you want? No, like, just take have our them. movie. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. <sighs> he says that he drove Jacob to a remote location and sexually assaulted him. Jacob asked Danny if he could please go home, that he was cold. When Heinrich replied that he cannot take Jacob home, Jacob asked, what did I do wrong? My sweet. Jacob is so sweet. He claims that he got spooked when he heard police sirens causing him to panic. So he told Jacob to turn around so that he could pee, but then actually shot Jacob in the back of his head. First, Heinrich just left Jacob there. And went back home for a few hours. Which seems weird if you're spooked because police are driving around. Right. That you would just, like, leave his body. Whatever. Then he returned and dragged Jacob's body about 100 yards. He attempted to bury Jacob but wasn't able to dig a grave. So he went out and stole a bobcat from a construction site nearby. And buried him. Like the... Yeah. figures face. I maybe didn't mean the animal... <laughs> Your face, I was like, she knows I don't mean he, like, stole a black. Yeah, that no, way. I knew what you meant. I just was like, that's a hard thing to steal. Yeah. Somebody see. Yeah. What's, what, Logan, Logan, um, Huntsberger? hmm He realized he didn't bury Jacob's shoes, so he threw them in a ravine on his walk back home. So, great idea. Between the burial site and your home throw this kid's shoes. A year later, Heinrich got scared and went back to the burial site where he spotted Jacob's jacket coming out of the dirt and then discovered that nearly all of the remains were uncovered. He buried Jacob again at the site that he would eventually be found. Patty Wetterling said in a statement after this confession, quote, Jacob's taught us all how to live, how to love, how to be fair, how to be kind, And I want to say to Jacob, I'm so sorry. It's incredibly painful to know his last hours, last minutes. We love you, Jacob. We continue to fight. For us, Jacob was alive until we found him. End quote. And that's it. I had seen somewhere that, like, his shirt was found, like, before him or something. And there's, like, when you Google him, there's, like, a bunch of pictures of his shirt. But it's not a white shirt. Is it a jacket? No, it's like a, it's like a jersey. Yeah. So there was. I thought she, when she wrote about it, she described it as his, as his like sports jacket, like a hockey. Jacket. Maybe it was. Um. But yes. Yeah, so there was like a few days. He gave them the site to go look, and they went and looked, and they found. Huh. Yeah. That's probably. It has his name on it. That looks like a shirt. You're right. So I don't really know. Maybe he was wearing it like under a white shirt or maybe he had a white jacket. I don't, not real sure. But there was a few day span that they were searching for his remains Mm -hmm. and they did find the shirt or jacket or something first. And Patty was telling them like, if it doesn't have his name on it, then it's not his And Mm -hmm. they were, like, well, it doesn't have his name on it, but, like, are you sure? Like, and they were, like, call the coach and see if they had their name on them at that time. And she was, like, it had his name on it. Like, I know it had his name on it. And so, I don't remember what the result of that was, but they had found something that, like, in the end wasn't his. And then later. It says Wetterling on it. No, well, that's not what they found. Later, they called her and they were, like, okay, like, we found the one with his name. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know if that means I don't think that that means like Heinrich buried someone else's clothes. I think maybe it was just like other clothes that were found in the area, but anyway, so yeah, I think they found it, and then that was like where they found the body.. Okay. Found I wasn't sure like how far before he was found. the shirt was found not long. Right. I don't think they had found anything of his until Heinrich gave them yeah area because it was in Painesville but it was like a private farm that like wasn't his so like they wouldn't have really looked there right I guess um otherwise but it wasn't one that you had much back and forth for but I also get that it's not very like confusing or like no (laughs) like it's just bad and just it's pretty straight. Forward. I was, like, waiting for the shirt thing, though, because I was, like, I went ahead and, like, made a thumbnail, and I, was I, like, put the shirt on it. I was, like, oh, this is a big deal, this shirt. And I was, like, yeah, okay, bring up the shirt now. Uh, and there's so many cute pictures of him and their family from Paddy Wetterling's book. So we'll put those somewhere. But it's it's one that, like, so I don't listen to Crime Junkie religiously, like most <laughs> people. So I had not heard this case on Crime Junkie. And then I moved to Minnesota and people talk about it like, I should just know, like, you know, mm-hmm. David Butterling. And I'm like, who? What? Yeah. And like, it is like such a huge deal here. Yeah. And like for 20 fucking years, his face was on billboards and like yeah. everywhere. And so like, everyone knows this case. And I was like, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. We don't really have like a case like that in Memphis. Well, I was going to say, like, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure the West Memphis 3 is, like, just as well known to the whole world as it is right. to Memphis. I would think so, too.
1: Yeah. But maybe think,
0: I'm wrong. Well, and, like, technically the West Memphis 3 is... Right, but it's near. Arkansas. Right. But, like, I think, I, th- I would say that, like, the, if you ask people from Memphis what the, like, most well-known, like, murder case they could think of from this city is, I think people would say, like, Lorenz and Wright. Yeah. Or like one of the many rappers who has been shot here in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we don't have like a like a twenty-year-long investigation on a child murder, like two and for us to be like talking yeah. about all the time. And it's like weird to me that this isn't like <laughs> again, not that it's not well known, but like <laughs> it's weird to me that this isn't like so obvious and, like, freaking O.J. Simpson when it's, like, led to so many, like, Mm -hmm. laws and, like, Amber Alerts and, like, the Sex Offender Registry and, like, this is, it's, like, absurd to think of a world where there wasn't a Sex Offender Registry or, like, there wasn't an Amber Alert system. And so, yeah, I don't know, know. I Wasn't it featured on, like, America's Most Wanted? I don't remember. Uh, we weren't alive, but like. I don't well, know I mean, we but I've alive. never seen it. Um, but because the guy who hosts America's Most Wanted, his son, also like disappeared. Um, and I want to say Is that he Adam Walsh. Yes. Okay. I want to say that he like, that John Walsh like, like got fairly close to the Wetterlings or he like did. wanted to like help them a lot. I think. Yeah. Because they're. They did work together. Similar, and so, like, but again, like, that's kind of crazy to me. I mean, I, I've i heard it because I do listen to Crime Junkie and I've heard it in other places, too, but that, like, it's one where somebody so close is so famous and especially in, like, true crime and that it's yeah. still, like, not super well-known outside of the area it took place in. Yeah. And, like, I know she's not the focus. But man, I am just so impressed with Patty Wetterling. Like I there's so much that I didn't include because that's not what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. But if you read her book, like she ha- like did so much. Like her life became about missing children and like she wasn't even paid. Like mm-hmm. it, it like wasn't actually like her job. She just like did it all day every day. And you know, I don't know. That's awesome. What a gal. hmm Yeah. So, that's it. Yeah. Good news is my case next week does not involve children or murder. So. My next one... bad news is it's still very rough. My next one also invo- involves child sexual abuse. So, that'll be my third in a row, and I think I really got to cool it. <laughs> yeah. But my next two are not murders nice but i'm researching my next one after those two and it is several child murders awesome <laughs> but not child sexual abuse thank you just straight up killing them okay got you my, my nightmares yeah. are just gonna shift yeah Ugh. okay friends well hopefully you have no nightmares yeah only fun spinning dreams. Only yeah. Bye. Okay. Bye.